there are as many stories to tell in the city as there are back alleys, which is to say one you could ever hope to count. We'll tell you all we can in time, but for now let's begin with this. Joe went for a walk. Why do we start with him? To look at him, you wouldn't think there's anything special about the man, and you'd be right. He was a portly man, before. That's why he took up the walking habit, before. The lean times have worn him thin, and his clothes hang loose from his frame these days. Sometimes when he walks, he wonders how much is left of the old world. Darkness creeps in from the boundaries, a little bit more every day. It's easy not to notice at first. It's easy not to notice the way the shadows keep growing a little bit deeper. It's easy not to notice the way tunnel mouths seem to harbor that extra amount of night. It's easy not to notice the way the dark begins to have a weight, a weight that becomes heavier with each day and presses down you more and more until you are stooped by it. Joe walks so he doesn't have to feel the weight. Everyone has their own method. There's a playhouse down on Lawn Street. The actors there will try the classics, like your Shakespeare, your Millers, or one of those old Russians. But it's the comedies that get the people in the seats. It used to be that the cast could do whole episodes of a friend's or an office, but nowadays, they just make up as they go along. Offer people shadows, and they'll pay twice whatever the real thing would have cost. That's the secret of McRae's joints. Nestled snug in the fortified center of the city, these casinos offer the illusion of safety, of normalcy. For a moment, you can spin the wheel, roll the dice, cut the cards, catch the avid dame or a john, and feel, in that single moment, that the dark outside is thin, and the old world is still substantial just past the veil, and you only have to hold on to it. But you can't. So instead, you spin, and you roll, and you cut, gambling nothing in a pursuit of a bigger nothing. From way down below, in the outskirts of town, Joe looks towards that center, and his heart fills with hate. He knows McRae understands the farce of it all. Joe walks, and he hates. Imagine McRae at the top of his building, the tallest tower still standing, gloating over how he's bent people's fear to his will. Joe walks, and he hates, and he feels proud of what he did. Joe tries not to judge the customers. Even as to take part in a machine he hates, he knows that everyone needs something. Like the woman who lives above him. She folds paper sigils. Joe asked her once if this was a form of origami, and she gave him a dirty look. She said they were to keep the wolves away. Joe is never sure what she meant by that. They were the last two in their building in the uncontested territory of the outskirts too close to the edge to be of use to anyone. Some nights, Joe goes up to the roof and finds her there. They face one way, and there is the dull dark of the city. Skyscrapers lie like black bones of some dead behemoth. Every so often, flames will blossom up, casting cruel fangs on the fields of blank faces. Face the other way, and there is the living dark of the midnight desert. Dunes of black sand mass and break, a tide formed what could only be described as unholy earth. Lightning strikes in the horizon, and even from a distance, Joe and his neighbor can see them that wait. When the city first made its descent, there were attempts to organize. Expeditions were mounted to chart those wastelands. Only one man ever did return from such an expedition. 
They never got the full story out of him, but they got enough to know that what he was trying to tell them was a cautionary tale. Attempts to organize tend to fall apart after that. People had to find their own way of coping. Joe walks. People used to look at him funny, back when there were still people to look. He would look back, seeing the question on their faces. What is he doing out there? He was walking. Just walking. That day, as he headed out, his neighbor was in the lobby of their building. She folded what he could only conclude was not origami and placed it on the front desk. He thought, the wolves must be getting closer. It occurred to him to make some smart-ass remark to her, but he didn't have the energy for it. There's just no point. She finished assembling the little sigil and returned to the building proper, never once even acknowledging Joe's presence. As he crossed the main doors, Joe snagged the sigil off the desk and slid it into his pocket. Why'd he do this? Because even if he didn't bother with insulting the lady, something in him was aching for some meanness. To him, there's nothing left in the city but meanness. Maybe it was better that way. Cold and simple. He left the building and started to walk. A course he traced so well, his feet might as well have grew past into the sidewalk. Liking the idea, he glanced down, fancying that he might see just that. The asphalt was cracked. Strange plants pushed through and spread their tendrils, seeking others so they might merge and swell. The new world wasn't waiting for those old ones to die. Joe did not look up when he walked. He kept his eyes straight ahead or straight down at the cracking pavement. The eastern sentry post was dark when he passed. No sirens sounded. A good thing. Just about the only thing actually achieved by this organization attempts three years ago was the creation of those sentry posts and the system that went with them. Green flares mean a storm has been spotted brewing in the midnight desert, and people at best take cover. But red flame means that something else is moving out there. Something else is approaching. Red flame means that taking cover might not be enough. A thought stopped him. Three years? Could it really have been that long? Jesus. You adjusted quickly enough. You had to, but still, the enormity of it nearly toppled him. Three years. One moment, a city is hustling and bustling. One moment, you live in a world where one moment follows the next in predictable and sensible fashion. And then there is an explosion in the sky above the city. And before you can react, a pale curtain spreads out from the explosion site and engulfs the entire city. And then you blink, and in the instant between when your eyes close and flick open again, the world has changed. The country beyond the city limits is gone, replaced on all sides by rolling black sand. And there are creatures that move in the depths of that desert, some the size of rats, others bigger than a semi-truck, but all sharing the same sense of hunger. And then there's the sky. Three years beneath that sky. Jesus. Joe walks way more than he ever did before the descent. When he walks, he feels free of the worries that are otherwise so very suffocating. His mind is free to talk endlessly to itself. 
Sometimes he thinks something speaks back. He crossed the street and cut into History Plaza. The Historical Commission kept this patch of land untouched from the days of revolution. It used to be the place was packed with actors, mostly broke college students from the school down the way. The square was empty, save for Joe and the fog, and a suddenly appearing figure that moved towards him. A squeak announced their presence even before the echo of footsteps on cobblestones reached Joe's ears. The figure cut deeper into the fog, coming closer. As it approached, it broke apart into three shapes. First, there was a tall round man with wiry red hair and beard, wearing what looked like hospital scrubs. Beside him was a short, dark man with eyes that never seemed to settle on any one place. And between them was a wheelbarrow. And in the wheelbarrow was a third man. The third man wasn't anything anymore. Howdy, neighbor, the big red one called. We're taking our poor friend here to the edge. Going to send him off real nice. Give him up to the sky, real swell. You have any more in your area need handling? No. Joel told him, surprised by his own voice. Is that what he sounded like? Would you like to join us in our little ceremony? My associate here is a tall glass of something special for the occasion. More than enough for three. And Joe had the thought, who are these people? Calling out to strangers? Bothering with funerals? He told them no again and pressed on into the fog. Here the red man called one last time, saying... You need anything? All of us are over the hospital. St. Peter's, you are more than welcome. Well, that got him wondering again, even after the fog swallowed up the strange trio. Who was all of us? He knew St. Peter's well, though it was not on his route. He could be there in a matter of hours if... A flash of memory. His little sister broke her leg once. She was taken to St. Peter's. They put her on pay meds, and the family spent an evening laughing together as she dipped in and out of the days. He could. But the hospital had burned. It burned the very first year. But, he thought, if they, whoever they are, if they could have fixed it up, turned the lights back on, they couldn't, but they haven't, another voice insisted. They couldn't have. Keep walking. Joe heard the rumble of engines in the distance, their whoops and hollers. Was it just a unique drag race, or gangs rushing off to the next rumble? The kids seemed to adjust to the dark world easier than others. Give it another few years, and there'll be many young adults who know only the black sun and the gray slate sky in which it sits. Joe wondered what sort of people they would be. And what about the generation after that one, if there even is one? Life goes on, he supposed. He keeps moving forward. Surely there were already some. Babies with eyes that were born for the dark. Surely there were still parents out there loving and making love and making life. Maybe at the hospital they... Maybe he could... But that voice again. Stick to your route. Just walk. He cut deeper into the heart of the city. He passed the busted gates of the zoo and aquarium. He heard it said that McRae raided the place, both for entertainment for his joints and for choice meat cuts. He'd heard another story. Heard that McRae keeps a lion on the top floor with him. Imagine that, a lion patting around the office like any other pussy cat. 
He'd also heard it said that there was a horse kept up there. A horse with white hair so brilliant, it was like the man had a son all his own in his office. That old hatred flared. Joe wondered if McRae ever thought about him. He wondered if that scar across his face ever twinged with remembered pain. A good shot. A close shot. The idea to kill the man had come to him during a walk just like this one. Kill the man. Break the illusion he was trying to infect others with. The how of it had been very simple. The city had been only its first year. Finding materials had been very easy. He'd taken a shot, a good shot, and gotten close. Ever since, he'd done his best to not even think about the assassination attempt. It was better to act like it had been someone else, someone living in his head and moving his hands. Only, now that he thought about it, he truly couldn't remember how he'd gone about assembling and using a gun like that. He was no engineer. He was no marksman. Now that he thought about it, he couldn't really fathom that it had been him, Joe, that crafted that weapon and pulled that trigger. He remembered the nights spent assembling the weapon. Friends and neighbors would poke their heads in as he worked, asking what he was doing. And he would say, nothing. It's nothing. Just a little project. But now a new thought halted him. Friends? Neighbors? Yes, he began to remember now. He remembered game night held by candlelight. He remembered Monty Strickland strumming guitar while the whole floor sat together and sang Beatles song. Helena Peters had a whole routine to go with Yellow Submarine and made the kids giggle like crazy. He heard it now, their laughter. It rippled off empty glass and returned to him a hollow thing. That was his life. He had had a life. He wondered where it went. Cataclysms can change things, of course. But no, no, he was thinking clearly now. The building did those things together after the descent. The community had stayed strong even after the unthinkable, become stronger even. But now he was left alone to ponder. Where had it gone? It had evaporated in a gunshot. McRae had survived the way his kind always does. And after the attack, he moved to fortify the center of the city. Families and strays poured into his walls, willing to do anything for safety, even make conscripting yourself to a lifetime of servitude. At least you would have a lifetime. Joe's building emptied out soon after. His life ended the moment he pulled that trigger. There must have been a reason for why he did it. A real reason. For the life of him, he could not imagine it. He reached Hawksetter Park and rested. Some phantom pain ached all throughout his body. The grass still grows in the city beneath the black sun, though maybe not any colors that the world above would know as natural. Joe tried to think. Why did he take that shot at McRae? How do you know how to do it? It really did seem to him that someone or something must have taken a hold of him. But that was preposterous. Then again, he thought, 
looking around the insanity that had been as normal for the last three years, was it really so hard to believe? If this is true, then you need help. You need other people. More than need, he found that he had a desperate want to be near others. So resolved, he stood up. From the park, he knew it could be at St. Peter's in a half hour. He started to walk. Two hours later, and he was still walking. His legs would not go the way he wanted to. They marched him around his route again and again, around and around. He wanted to scream. He wanted to tell his legs to let him go. There was something funny happening in the city, something to do with creation and not decay, something beyond the misery he knew so well. And he wanted to be a part of it more than anything else in the world. He wanted to be a part of this new beginning, whatever it was. But instead, he kept moving back to Hawk Center Park. Sweat was on his brow and in his clothes, soaking into his socks. Anxious, his hand went to his pocket. The touch of paper confused him. Then he recalled the sigil and retrieved it from his pants. He turned over his hand. It was a deceptively intricate thing. He studied closer, tracing the lines with one finger. Something trembled within him. Some knowledge reached for awareness. He knew this shape. How did he know this shape? His feet ached. It was his route that he walked every day, multiple times every day, that he'd walked every day since before the descent, over and over, hundreds of times, embedding this sigil into the ground and charging with repetition in his mutters. And for a brief, oh so brief moment, Joe realized the enormity of how completely he had been had. For one instant, he saw beyond himself and saw the web which he'd been lulled into building and which now ensnared him. He had time for a single thought of grief. Grief for himself, for the city, and for what might have been his life. And then he heard a voice that was somehow his own and yet utterly alien. And the voice told him just what to do. Joe raised his eyes to the sky for the first time he did not know how long. The dark god stared back, his eye the black sun above the city. And Joe saw Joe saw how full of love his expression truly was. And he was not afraid. Not even as teeth the size of Cadillacs closed down around him. And silence returned to Hawksetter Park. Of Joe, there was no trace save one. A pair of worn sneakers lying side by side in the grass. But they wouldn't lie there long, and the next wear would have a bit better luck than Joe. But that's another story.